Well, good evening. I bring you uh, greetings from Pilgrim OPC in Bangor, Maine. Um, it was quite a flight down here, um, but it is wonderful to be with, uh, here with you all, uh, worshiping with you. Um, I've had the privilege of, as I've come here as a hybrid student, um, coming over past years and seeing the church grow in different ways, and it's been a blessing. Uh, you guys have been a blessing to, my, uh, to me as I uh, worship here and have a a home church in Florida. I have a home family. They're called the Meethers, and I have a home church here as well. Um, so it's 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 a blessing to worship with you. Um, but we will be considering. It's especially a joy to be considering Psalm 87 together. And so, if you would turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 87, this will be our sermon text. I am going to read a second passage as well in Ephesians. But let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people, This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. And now turning forward to a New Testament reading, I will be considering this uh, partially in the, uh, in the middle of the sermon, to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, verse 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. You may be seated and we will 
ask God's blessing on his word tonight. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that you have given us. Lord, we are entirely dependent upon you to give us the blessing that you would speak to us by your spirit, Lord, that it would not fall on deaf ears, but it would fall in fertile soil, that we would rejoice in the gospel tonight and thereby strengthened in Jesus Christ. We ask this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the title of the sermon suggests in the bulletin, I'm interested in answering a particular question tonight. In this psalm that we just read, in Psalm 87, we have the assertion that glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God, referring to, of course, Mount Zion or or Jerusalem. But what's so glorious about Mount Zion? Now, if this psalm had been uh, written in Solomon's day, often considered the golden age of Israel, it may have been pretty easy to see why someone would have written something like that, right? When the the economy was booming, their military strength was an all-time high. But when you consider that Israel sung this song during and after the exile, well then, verse 3 seems to kind of out of place. I mean, when you consider that things were figuratively and literally falling apart and crumbling when Israel had become a dwarfed nation, a humiliated nation, verse 3 would seem very out of place. Zion? Glorious? I mean, how could you not sing that, at least with a little bit of irony? Well, the only way you can declare that is by looking forward to God fulfilling his covenant promises to his people of of dwelling with his people. And so as we look at this psalm tonight, we need to put on the lens of the New Testament. Because as we do, we see that Zion and Jerusalem point forward to the church, to God's final dwelling place with his people, in his people. And to do this, mind you, is not merely legitimate application. It's how we ought to interpret the psalm as New Testament Christians. We see this and we unpack the glories of Zion here. But we also need to see how profoundly this speaks of the glory of the church. And don't forget our context, too, as well. In our context, like the Israelites, who would have at times in their history struggled to see the glory of Zion we can struggle to see the glory of the church for many reasons. Sometimes it's because of outward opposition, right? The the world continually mocks, and our culture mocks and belittles us, right? The church is, it's, it's outdated, or it's pathetic, or it's hypocritical. And since the church is filled with sinners like ourselves, and we don't always carry the name of God very faithfully, it can be challenging to see why this community of people is such a great thing in the first place. And furthermore, there's nothing really outwardly, especially glorious about us, outwardly at least. I want to read a quote from uh, Megan Hill. She's a wife of a PCA pastor, and she writes a book titled, A Place to Belong learning to love the local church. And listen how she begins her book in the introduction. She says, around the corner from where I live, a house is for sale. And in gold, uh, bold green letters, the lawn sign reads, I'm gorgeous inside. The message is surprising. 
From the street, the house is thoroughly ordinary and even run down. It's a 70s-era raised ranch with dingy white vinyl siding and a location on a busy road. The roof looks like it lacks the necessary resolve to bear the weight of another winter's snowfall. The circular driveway loops around a weedy patch of grass, obviously intended for a fountain there, but more likely currently concealing ticks. The bushes are too big, the windows are too small, and the backyard is non-existent. But the sign encourages me to believe there's something more beautiful and more valuable about this seemingly ho-hum house than I can appreciate from the curb. The local church is a little like that house, she says. At first glance, the house of God is unremarkable, a regular gathering of ordinary people committed to a largely invisible mission, where young and old, male and female, single, married, unemployed, and overworked, none of us is much to look at. We sing slightly off-key, and we can't always clearly articulate the faith that we profess. Anyone can see that our diverse personalities and our political views and our parenting styles don't easily harmonize always, and even our most spiritually mature members sometimes stumble into quarrels or to petty jealousies or grumbling or lethargy. Following worship, bad coffee and awkward moments are served at plastic tables in the damp basement. But the church, listen, the church has more beauty and more value than we can see with our physical eyes. We might not immediately realize it from the curb, but this house is gorgeous. Now I begin with that quote because I think it's really helpful to set this text up. So what is so gorgeous? What is so glorious about the church then? Well, we're given at least four reasons in this psalm as to why the church is so glorious. And brothers and sisters, we need to hear this. We need to hear this because we so often lose sight. It's very easy to lose sight of the gospel realities that God, in his word, characterizes us by. And as we'll see, as we go through these reasons, these four reasons why the church is glorious, we'll see that the glory of the church actually has everything to do with the glory of the gospel. So first, we see here that the church is glorious because God founded it. In other words, it's God's initiative. Look at verse 1. It says, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The psalmist is bringing before us, he's got an, an image of, of Mount Zion, of Jerusalem, with all its, its mountains, its walls, the houses, the temple. He says the first thing he says about this, this is a place that God founded his people. But in order to appreciate that, you have to remember the miraculous, the miraculous history of what God had to do to bring these people to that place. He started by calling a man named Abram, a pagan moon worshiper with no heir or offspring. And he says to him, I'm going to give you descendants more numerous than the stars in heaven, and I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And throughout the ages, he multiplies and prospers his people again and again. And then when they become enslaved to Egypt, he miraculously delivers them through the Red Sea. He gives them his law. He organizes them as a nation. He makes another covenant with them. And then he calls King David eventually to defeat the Jebusites and to take Mount Zion against all odds. And then years later, build the temple through his son, Solomon, 
establishing Jerusalem to be his dwelling place with his people. And so when you just consider all the history, just that I said really briefly there, you can, you can imagine why Zion had become a symbol that Israel had all the privileges of being a nation that was led by Almighty God himself. The one who created the heavens and the earth was on their side. No other nation could have claimed that kind of relationship or privilege. But see, all these privileges are attributed to one thing. God's initiative. It had to be. It couldn't be anything else, because as we're told in Isaiah, no one seeks after God. No, not one. And yet God sought a people for himself that didn't seek him. He was determined to make them his own. And you need to recognize how, how strengthening that is for the Israelites, what security that would have given them, even in their lowest points of history. Right, a small nation surrounded and terrorized by so many national superpowers. A nation who would be singing the song while they're in exile from the Babylonians. Or even when they return to rebuild the ruins under Persian rule. Knowing that God determined to make a people for himself, for his own initiative, would have, by his own initiative, would have given any believer confidence that he would remain faithful to his promises. It was his initiative. As we'll sing after the sermon, uh, a hymn from John Newton based on this psalm, he says this in the first verse, Glorious things of you are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed you for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake your sure repose? And that's exactly what we sing about the church not just of Zion. God took the initiative in founding his church, not only giving them covenants through Abraham, through Moses, through David, but by sending his son into the world to die as a ransom for the people. And through that death, through his death, he creates and he establishes a community of redeemed sinners. To quote the Puritan William Jenkins, he says, that the church comes out of Christ's side in his sleep of death. You see the imagery there, right? Of Adam and Eve. Eve coming out of Adam in his sleep in the garden. Well, the church comes out of Christ in his, of his side in his sleep of death. His death establishes a new community of redeemed sinners. In other words, we're a blood-bought people. And because of Christ's sacrifice, we're brought into an even greater Zion. An even greater Zion, a greater reality. And this is what the author of Hebrews gets at in chapter 12. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you see the glory of that? The glory of what you and I enjoy right now in the heavenly Jerusalem. The joy that we are in the heavenly Mount Zion, that we have blood that doesn't speak condemnation like it did for Abel, 
No, blood that speaks peace. And do you see what security that we enjoy because God founded this? The author of that, of that passage in Hebrews goes on to say this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's solid. We are citizens of a kingdom that will never be defeated. Not by any opposing force in this world, not by any government. Why? Because God founded it. That's why. And what does Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. The church was God's idea. His initiative, founded upon the solid rock of Jesus, and no matter what opposition you and I face in years to come, it's always going to stand, because Christ is the king and the shepherd of the church. Well, secondly, we also see here, the church is not only glorious because God founded it, but the church is glorious because it's the object of God's special love. It says here, the Lord loves the gates of Zion. Now, before we ask, why does he love Zion more than the other dwelling places, we actually need to ask a much more fundamental question. Why did he love Zion at all? I mean, is there something uniquely special about Zion? I've never been over there into, you know, the land of Jerusalem, but I don't think that it glows, you know, with a special kind of hue. It's like this golden city, and you just go through this force field, and it's, it's this amazing special place. It, there's nothing inherently special about it. So why does he love Zion? Well, Calvin says that the cause of God's favor of Zion is not the worth of the place itself, but simply what? The free love of God. I mean, that's what's implicit in this text. It doesn't give you reason why he loves Zion at all. And the implicit reason, I think, is the same as what he gives in Deuteronomy 7 for giving, loving Israel at all. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you. And that's what we say to the church, too. It was not because, O oh church, that you were more numerous or more attractive and flashy. It was not because you were more lovely or obedient than the rest. It was not because you were stronger or wiser than others that the Lord set his love on you. It was because the Lord loves you. And that's a deep comfort. That is a deep comfort, because I don't know about you, I'm not a very re good reason for the, the cause of God's love. I mean, if I start to ask, Lord, why did you choose me? And I go looking in myself for the answers, and I start sifting through all the sin and the failure, I'm going to come out on the other side despondent. But the hope given simply here is that the Lord loves. It's rooted and it's grounded in his own unchangeable being. And so when anything besides the love of God is the answer for the love of God, it ceases to be hope. But we're given again the answer here that the Lord loves Zion. We've received the great love of God seen in the giving of his son. We have all the proof we need in the gospel. 
We see it in the giving of his son, and we exclusively enjoy the favor of God, who works everything for the good of his people. Only the church has that joy and assurance. We've inherited the one who is the inexhaustible fountain of love, and it's given to you. It's like you have an inner courtyard, and God has given you this inexhaustible fountain of love to you. You're the recipient of it. Well, thirdly, we see also that the church is glorious because it's his peculiar dwelling place. We're told not only that the Lord loves Zion, but that he loves it more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob, meaning Israel. Now, as you know, Jerusalem, of course, is where the temple was. And it's in that temple where God has chosen to reveal the fullness of his presence, which we call his Shekinah glory. Now, we see this dramatically, I think, in, in, in 2 Chronicles 6, when Solomon, he's built the temple and he's dedicating the temple and he prays to God to bless it. And what does God do in response? Fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord fills the temple so much that the priest can't even go in. Now, an image like that, for us, is kind of hard to relate to, isn't it? Uh, that seems too miraculous and dramatic, right? I'm sure, it, I don't think it's probably happened here, and it hasn't happened in my church, but why do we have a hard time relating to that? Is it simply just because we haven't seen it with our eyes? I wonder if part of the reason it's because we might be actually forgetting the reality of what the gospel has accomplished. That God takes sinners like you and me, and he makes us a dwelling place for his spirit of glory. Or to put it in other words, to quote someone else, God has chosen his church as a mansion of his holiness and honor, both corporately and individually. We are his dwelling place. He is no longer in the back room of a temple. He now resides in us, and as we gather for corporate worship, we are like bricks of that spiritual temple assembling as the temple in which the Spirit fills. So of course the Lord loves Zion. Of course he loves his church. His glory is there. It's his dwelling place. We are the peculiar dwelling place of God's glory. But lastly, we see here that the church is glorious because... It's expansive. Look at the verses 4 through 6. These are interesting verses, aren't they? Among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, This one was born there. Now when I read those verses, I can't. I can't help but think of like an Israelite boy kind of like tugging on his dad's, like, what did we just sing? <laughs> did we just sing about our enemies? Dad, how in the world are they going to be considered one of us? What is this about? I mean, this is shocking. This would be like saying uh, people from, you know, Afghanistan, Iran, North Korea, they're going to be born in God's city. It's astonishing. And these serve, of course, these nations mentioned in verses 4 through 6, they serve 
as illustrations in the Bible of, of sinful, idolatrous nations, enemies not only against Israel, but God himself. And, and just imagine an Israelite hearing this, right? Rahab, which is another word used for Egypt, will be born in Zion. Really? Egypt, the ones who enslaved our people hundreds of years? Babylon, who defeated and exiled the people out of their land? Philistia, Israel's age-old enemy and constant thorn in their side. Tyre and Cush, cities that represented uh, wealth and pride and greed and covetousness, they're going to be born in Zion? You know, it's interesting, when you, when you read through the major prophets, and it's, it's a very weighty thing to do, isn't it? You, you see the judgments of God, these seemingly unstoppable, mighty superpower nations that have control over tracts of land we couldn't even dream of now. And they have all this power, and yet God pronounces this utter crushing defeat of them by his holy judgment. In other words, his triumph over evil. However, when we read this, Consider this, when we read this, this is like the ultimate triumph over evil. People who ought to belong to the kingdom of darkness are brought into the kingdom of light. They're converted, they're transformed. How is that possible? And notice too, this, this, is, this is born of Zion. This is not just some from a surrounding tribe or something. I mean, this is straight out of the capital. It's hard to imagine in the days of the Israelites who received such hostility and, and oppression from these nations as to how such a prophecy could be fulfilled. However, I think in one sense, a psalm like this probably ought to be expected. When you consider and remember the promises that God gave to Abraham, that through him and his seed, he would be a blessing to all nations. Gentile sinners brought into the church of God by faith. Brothers and sisters, we don't need to look past this room to see the fulfillment of that promise. A room full of Gentiles praising the Lord in the name of Christ and being having their, hairs, their prayers accepted and heard. It's amazing. This, and this is the fulfillment of the promise in verse 5, that the Most High will establish her. How? By the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that establishes a new community. And that's why we read Ephesians 2. That at once time, one time we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, we were brought near by the blood of Christ, breaking down the wall of hostility, making one new man in place of the two, so that they're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. That's Psalm 87. How were we born? Well, what does Jesus say needs to happen for us to enter the kingdom of God? They must be born again by the Holy Spirit. And that's what God does with us. He brings us to new life, to new birth. And then he marks us, not by the condemnation that we really deserve. No, he marks us by the grace, recording us, if you will, to use the language of Psalm 87, recording us as being his own. And when you stop and really actually meditate and think about that, you have to exclaim with the apostle, 
Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we, even we, should be called the children of God. That's an amazing privilege, to be called the children of God, even us. Now, we also need to see the implication this has, the obvious implications, I think, for missions. Some have called Psalm 87 the missionary psalm because these verses stick out so prominently. And that's why many of our church budgets, especially in the OPC, reflect verses 4 through 6. There's a reason why we give thousands of dollars to worldwide outreach and to missionaries, whether they're in Greece or France or Africa or China. It's in obedience to Jesus' command to make disciples of every nation. And God has given the church the task to equip and to send these missionaries. And see, because, because there's the expectation that God has his elect in all kinds of countries, because of these verses, we can therefore expect a harvest of sinners coming to Christ. So that we can say, yeah, he too was born in Zion. And she too, she's, she's born when the gates of his holy city. Do you see the glory of that? Of God's grace that conquers over barriers of sin, of hostility. Extending hope to millions of people, all from different kinds of backgrounds. I heard a story um, from a pastor that visited our church back in Maine. He's a pastor in Greece. And uh, he had uh, two Ukrainian uh, a Ukrainian couple visit his tr- church, and they wanted to hear the preaching, but they can't speak Greek. Well, the only person there who could translate the sermon into Ukrainian was a Russian woman. This is a year ago during the war. And so there they were, this, this Russian lady translating the gospel to two Ukrainians. Wall of hostility broken down. I heard a story, another story, to give you another example of a professor from RTS Jackson who taught a class and he finally remembers in the front seat an Arab and a Jew sitting right next to each other, eager to learn the gospel together, historical enemies now united in Christ, sitting to each other, next to each other, and they're eager to learn about the gospel and about the word of God. It's the wall of hostility that's broken down. And so the church of God, it's, it's glorious because it's an expansive church that extends the saving grace of God to people of all nations, breaking down the hostility and reflecting the power and the beauty of God's grace by its diversity. And so I think we can see that all these reasons that the psalm gives us are sufficient to show why the church is so glorious. And as I say again, we need to, to remember this. this is, it's important for us, especially as we live in an age of Christians that deeply undervalues the church. Right? It's, it's me and Jesus and no one else. And the church is seen as kind of this, this optional package. It's, it's an available resource if it, if it so helps me in my personal walk. But other than that, I can leave it or take it. Or you consider that too often are, people are so discouraged by the church, they say, well, I love Jesus. It's just his people I don't like. As if you can have 
Christ without his bride. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that our greatest need is to recapture the New Testament teaching concerning the church. If only we could see ourselves in terms of it, we'd realize that we are the most privileged people on earth. That there is nothing to be compared with being a Christian and a member of the mystical body of Christ. And that's why we need to recover the sense of the glory of the church, because it has everything to do with the gospel. If you haven't already seen. That's why in verse 7, it says, There's singers and dancers alike who say, All my springs are in you, Zion. Now listen carefully. The church itself isn't the gospel, but it is in the church where we find Jesus Christ, the one who is the source, the spring, dispensing gospel blessings to his people. Where do you go to hear God speaking? To be taught and built up in his word, to be proclaimed uh, profoundly to, as we did this morning, that sinners can be justified in the sight of almighty, holy God. Where do you go to hear that? Where do you go to be nourished and strengthened by the Lord's Supper? To be reminded of your baptism. To be strengthened and supported in your walk with God. Where do you go to be challenged in your faith, to live out the truths of the gospel with other imperfect Christians just like you? What kind of community is filled with people who are gifted by the Holy Spirit for you to be blessed and benefited by, and for you to bless and benefit others? It's the church. Now, as you've probably already noticed, everything that is glorious about the church in this psalm has everything to do with God, with the king of the church. What's the main attraction here at Reformation OBC? It's God and his gospel, that you have the gospel preached to you here. And it's, it's, very, it's very easy to miss that, that God himself is the main attraction. It's, it's easy to miss that in many churches. The temptation we can be, have is to define whether it's our church or any other church, for that matter, only by strengths or weaknesses, by you know, a, a certain kind of ministry it may or may not have, or by how good the music is, by how big or how small the church is, whether we've got a good curb appeal or not, or whether we've got the right kind of outreach strategy, which I have to say are all thing, good things to consider. But if we only assess a church by these things, we can be tempted to forget what it is we're actually offering to the world and to each other. It's Jesus Christ. He's the main attraction. And with him comes every spiritual blessing you could ever possibly need. So brothers and sisters, this psalm is a song for us to sing, to rejoice in. It's a song for you to sing when you feel discouraged about the church, by the sin, by the conflict, the, the disharmony that can sadly be true of us sometimes. But this is a song, it's a song to sing and to remember because it speaks of a body of people that receives the relentless grace of God, who has established it and promised to work in it and through it as an instrument in his hand. 
as missionary outposts, offering hope to every nation and person for his own glory. Glorious things are spoken of you, church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you of the glories we have just heard, that you have blessed us with your word, that you faithfully do it, Lord, in your goodness and your mercy. Father, we pray that you would bless us as we turn to the supper now, that you would strengthen us by your almighty hands, that you would point us to Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.